Welcome to Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners, the podcast for dentists who are ready to take their practice to new heights. Join your host, Stan Kinder, who has worked with the profession over four decades and now represents practice owners interested in exploring a relationship with a DSO. On the show, he explores ways to grow your income and increase the value of your practice. Expect thoughtful conversations with influential guests who are pioneers in the dental industry. From insightful dental consultants to brilliant marketing experts, from accomplished dental practice owners to innovative dental manufacturers, this podcast will bring you a diverse range of perspectives. Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners is here to equip you with the tools and information you need to thrive. Your practice's future begins right here. And now, here's your host, Stan Kinder. Hello, everyone, uh, and welcome to another episode of the Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners podcast. I'd like to introduce today's guest, Dr. Lawrence Kotlow. Uh, he is a board-certified pediatric dentist and uh, has lectured both nationally and internationally, uh, published quite a bit. And for your benefit, Dr. Kotlow, my goal in these podcasts really to is expose the listeners to subject matter experts who can offer some perspectives on uh, how practice owners might potentially uh, be more successful. And your background and experience certainly seem like a good fit. So I really appreciate your agreeing to participate today. My pleasure. Uh, a, a good starting point in the conversation is probably maybe for you to just introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your background, sort of where you started and how things evolved to where you are today. I could take the whole half an hour if you really want to go back. <laughs> the short version is I went to a pharmacy school for three years and decided that I wasn't going to sell cigarettes and candy. And I was fortunate enough back in the early 70s to get into dental school only for three years of college. So I went to Buffalo, SUNY Buffalo Dental School, and then we went to Cincinnati. I got married. We had a baby. We went to Cincinnati where I um, did my residency. And actually, December 19th, 1974, I came back to Albany and started my practice. I always wanted to come back home. All my family at that time was alive and well. Now on the top of the heap, everybody else has gone, unfortunately. Yeah, welcome to my world. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, you know, we have three children here and a lot of my friends from high school stayed here. It's not like today where everybody just disperses all over the world. Sure. And sure. Uh, there was a need here and I came home. You can read my credentials. I'm board certified. I've got advanced proficiency in a variety of different laser wavelengths. And I think one of your questions is, how does it differ today from yesterday? I probably couldn't even pass my boards today because what I do has nothing to do with what we were taught in dental school. Everything I do is laser dentistry. We use very little local anesthetics. And again, we can spend seven hours talking about laser dentistry. Sure. But technology today has it's changed, especially in the area of pediatric care. I think it's so much easier and less stressful for the patient, the staff, and myself. Sure. Talk a little bit, uh, given that the uh, the vast majority of the listeners to the podcast are general dentists, talk a little bit about what lasers have meant for you and your practice and what they could potentially mean for the general practitioner. Well, I don't think it matters what if you're a GP or if you're a pediatric dentist. The first thing you need to do is, what do you want to use your laser for? We have basically three types of lasers. We have hot lasers, which cut hard tissue, 
soft tissue. We have hot lasers that only cut soft tissue. We have cold lasers, which we use for trauma called photobiomodulation. Okay, they don't cut, they don't generate heat, but they do affect cell at the cellular level and prevent cellular death. So we can treat trauma, get analgesia, and things like that with our lasers. Now for the GP, you know, I used to send a lot of stuff out to G to specialists. Now I sent nothing other than impacted wisdom teeth or impacted teeth or stuff which I don't know, orthodontics. I don't do such as ortho. But anything I do in pedo, a general practitioner can do with his adult patients or children's patients, as long as they understand the physics and how the lasers work, because that's real important. If you don't understand the physics behind it, which I always laugh at because I flunked physics in high school. Now I teach it. So it's kind of a, <laughs> I wish I could go back and learn everything I ignored in high school in physics because it runs our whole life. But, you know, like phrenectomies, gingivectomies, implant recovery, apicoectomy, anything where you have to cut bone or hard tissue, uh, tooth structure, or any soft tissue surgery can be done by the general dentist or the pediatric dentist in your own practice. So you don't buy a laser to increase your income, but the return on your investment is significant because I can do four quadrants on a child uh, in primary teeth without numbing them and don't have to worry about getting a call four hours later. Why is his tongue all white? Because he bit himself. Right, right. I've done over 40,000 laser surgeries. I've never seen one infection. Wow. And again, there's over 28 different soft tissue procedures and operative. But within our time frame, I, I just want to give you the idea that it's not just pediatrics, but any pediatric dentist should invest in a hard and soft tissue laser. And they come in CO2s, erbiums, and then you have diodes, which are expensive electrosurge instruments, but do have benefits over electrosurgery. Sure. You know, I've been working with the profession for uh, um, actually a little over 40 years in a variety of different capacities. And one of the things that uh, I've seen not uncommonly is as these new technologies emerge, a lot of times dentists will make the investment, acquire the technology, and then, you know, it ends up kind of becoming an, an expensive uh, coat rack. Exactly. Uh, and not really being used. One of the things that uh, I would be interested in is hearing a little bit about what kind of training is required to really become effective in using the lasers. Back when I started through the Academy of Laser Dentistry, we had to know how every laser worked and all the physics. Today, the average dentist is no longer an early adapter. They want to pick it up and go to work. Yeah. And they want to learn the physics. But if you use a high-speed drill, it's contact. When you use a laser, it's visual because it's non-contact. I worked through a microscope, and that took a little bit of learning. Uh, with the laser, each manufacturer today, they'll either hand you a CD, which I don't approve of, or they'll have a, their own course. And you attend the user's meeting, and you get a, a lot of good information. You can also get good information attending the Academy of Laser Dentistry's meetings. But I think that you don't start a phrenectomy on a newborn before you start learning how to do it on an older patient. You don't start doing operative dentistry on a five-year-old until you learn how to use your handpiece and become proficient. So there is a learning curve. Uh, when I, I have a seven-hour lecture, I talk about the learning curve. It's like my granddaughter was in gymnastics, and when she started, if she did one flip, it was good. 
Now she can do 20 in a row. Right. So you have to be patient and understand that it works and learn that it's not all laser, but the lasers do give you what I call an analgesic effect. And then you can pick up your high-speed laser, high-speed handpiece sometimes and go to work. What's nice about it, like I had an implant where I had a bicuspid extracted. I used a low-level laser. I put it in the socket. And then I, when they closed it up, I did it. I had no swelling, no pain, no inflammation. One of my older kids just had a, his wisdom teeth taken out. And I started him with low-level laser therapy two days before and five days after. He had no pain. He took a Motrin, no swelling. So there are a lot of advantages of learning the technology, but you need to be patient. Uh, and it all depends on your own dexterity and skill. It's like working with the microscope. I picked it up in two seconds. Some people can take six weeks to learn. Sure. So I, I think with the newer technology today, thinking in dental school, it took us four years to learn how to do a filling and get out of dental school. And now we're trying to change our technology by using lasers. And that makes a big difference. Yep. Yeah. You know, you uh, clearly have kind of been on uh, the forward edge of clinical practice uh, within your specialty. And I've often heard uh, folks say that, you know, clinical expertise is really not sufficient to lead to success. I'm interested in your perspective on that. And maybe if you could speak to other things aside from uh, the clinical side of the equation that have helped uh, you be successful over time? Well, I guess I'm very fortunate that, number one, I have five staff members who've been with me for over 40 years. Uh, they're paid well, and they show up, and they don't take time off unless they need to, and they have their vacation time. And staffing, we don't get any of that kind of information in dental school. You learn on the fly to a certain degree. But there are a lot of companies that come in and try to teach you, but a lot of it's just basic common sense. Yep. Um, advertising. I never externally advertised. But what I did back in the 70s is I used my VCRs and created all my own patient education tapes. And I enjoy doing that kind of stuff. That's things I like to do. Today, for all my procedures and how I do it, it's so much easier because computers have allowed you to do what technology didn't allow you to do 50 years ago. So we produce our own patient education tapes. I lecture all over the world to people. And the problems we have in dentistry are universal. The concerns are universal. They're not just localized in New York or Buffalo or Cincinnati or California. Uh, you have to be open to new technology. You have to um, be good with your staff. But more importantly, I look at dentistry as not my vocation, but my avocation. It's my hobby. I've liked doing it from the day I walked into dental school. A little nervous because I didn't know if I could get through it or not. But I've spent time in, in London, in Australia, in the Middle East, uh, all over the world, lecturing and, and teaching. And, you know, if I can spread the information and teach people, it's not just getting going to the office and putting on my clinical coat and going to the mouth. It's liking what you're doing, enjoying what you're doing, choose and pick the part of dentistry you like to do, get a well-trained, educated staff to work with you, and uh, teach, spread your information. 
when you put all that together, the only trouble is if I ever retire, which I doubt, I'll have to figure out what to do because my life evolves in dentistry so much. <laughs> uh, you kind of actually, in what you just uh, spoke about, you've kind of answered the, the next question. I was going to ask you to, you know, if you could distill somewhere between three and five specific tips that you would uh, give to practice owners as being critical to their success over time. And uh, you just did a great job of, uh, of answering that. Talk to me a little bit. I know you've been a, a prolific on the lecture circuit as well as writing and publishing. Speak to me a little bit about what the focus of those activities have, uh, have been primarily. Oh, basically, we've already talked about it. Uh, the book I wrote is on infant phrenectomies. I have another atlas. My articles are basically on why the medical community ignores what we've learned and do, why we have such a problem getting them to understand what we do, and that medicine and dentistry have merged. So many things that I treat dentally also have systemic effects. And we need to work with the healthcare providers or they need to work with us. I see over 2000 babies a year and send a letter to every pediatrician and I never got one response back from them. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, it goes back, if you enjoy what you do, everything else falls into place. I mean, there are pitfalls along the road, um, but you know, today's different than when I started 50 years ago. We didn't have the internet the way we have it. We didn't have Google reviews. We didn't have patients who go back to their doctor and say, Dr. Kotler wants to do this. And they say, no, he's just doing it to make money. And like the New York Times just had a big expose on everything we're doing. And I spoke to that article, the author of that article for over an hour. And she didn't include anything that I said in there, which was good because I didn't want to be part of it. But they took an ENT doctor who really doesn't know anything about tongues and lips and breastfeeding and a lactation person who was working with somebody and a person who had a bad result. And it was a whole article on the negative side of things. And like I said, if you know what you're doing and you educated, everything she talked about wasn't real. And, and she just wouldn't go in there and give us an even side. But, you know, as I wrote her back, I said, you know, what else am I supposed to expect? And if I don't know what your political gains are, but we have a president who's got dementia and she, you read up everything, what he does, and you ignore that aside right. from all the other politics. So yeah. I said, how yeah, can I believe it's, it? It's, it's uh, you know, the media has such a negative bias. Um, oh my God, they're terrible. Yeah. Uh, years ago, I was an administrator in the health center on the uh, uh, University of Maryland campus uh, when uh, Len Bias died. And I actually testified a grand jury hearing and you know, the media sort of uh, interviewed me afterwards, and I spoke for probably five minutes. And of course, they abstracted the 10 seconds that they thought would be the most controversial. And uh, it was a little crazy. Think about dentistry. The big news, go back in the 70s, there was a dentist who passed AIDS to his patients. Okay, that was blown up all over the place. Not that dentists wear masks and gloves and gowns and do everything possible. This is one bad person, okay? Yeah. And there was an article on CNN about a five-year-old who couldn't talk. And they were a whole thing. They went to a new dentist and they discovered the child was tongue-tied. But 
kid is five years old, had seen three dentists, pediatricians, ENTs. No one noticed it. That's not discovering. That's malpractice. Yeah. Yeah. It's frustrating. And that's probably the hardest part of dentistry is when you know what you're doing is right and it's the best for your patients and the internet has negative stories about it rather than positive stories. About oh, it. sure. That's the thing. They, uh, something goes out on the internet. It goes uh, so wide, so fast. It's viral. It's really kind of hard to counteract it. I agree. I remember uh, years ago when the Reader's Digest uh, did that piece where they, they had a patient see, I can't remember the exact number, seven or eight different dentists. And of course, each dentist had a different diagnosis, different recommendation for treatment. And uh, they did everything to sort of dramatize uh, that in very negative ways. They still do it. I mean, I have patients who I'll tell have three cavities. I show them on the x-ray. They'll go to another dentist who doesn't even look at the x-rays. It says, oh, I don't see anything clinically wrong. They're only baby teeth. Yep. Uh, but again, in this short amount of time, we can't get into all the negative. We talk about the positive, and that's dentistry for me has been fun. It's been educational, and it gives me the opportunity to teach, to work. And look, like I said, I'm 77. I've been in practice for over 50 years, and I don't have an exit strategy. I told them if something happens, just wheel me down and put me into the ground because <laughs> I don't know what I would do because I have too much fun with this and my staff. And it's, it's just a, it's an enjoyable occupation at the present time. For me. Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, one of the things that's sort of uh, fashionable in the current moment is to talk about the quality of the patient experience, you know, generally in healthcare writ large. And you're seeing more and more consultants and advisors in the dental universe begin to speak to and focus on that a little bit. I'm curious if you, if you have any particular perspective on that. You're talking about people who come in and tell the dentist how to set up his practice and work? No, really more just, you know, the kinds of things that a practitioner can do to make sure that the uh, patient has a very high quality experience when they come to the office. Well, I think that some of the things which we do is... You're my patient. You come in with your child. We use the laser. We talk about it ahead of time. Now, I don't need a consent to use a laser any more than I need to use a high speed, but it's good practice management to tell the patients the technology that you're using. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't charge extra to use it. Although I know there were some dentists early on who used to charge and brag. They made X number of dollars a year just by charging to use a laser. But that's like asking a parent which child do you want to live or die? If I can only say one, you know, you don't want to have a parent come in and have to say, do you want me to give your kid a needle and drill his tooth? Or do you want me to be able to use a laser and make it a pleasant experience? So we try to make that as pleasant as we can. Sure. Uh, sure. And you get rid of the fear factors, but the fear factors, the vibrations, the smell, the sound, they're created due to the pain and discomfort sometimes rather than the actual vibrations and stuff. So I think that we talk about the benefit of a laser and we talk about why, look, your child will miss one day of school a morning rather than four visits. If you're bringing them, you're only going to have to miss a few hours of work 
rather than take four days off. So these are other parts of dentistry that we're doing. And when you're working with kids, it's important because they don't want to take their kids out of school. They can't get this hour and that hour to take their child to the doctor, the dentist, unless it's an emergency. So the experience is not just putting the patient in the chair. The experience is from the time they come to your office and you make your diagnosis and through digital x-rays, we don't have a little slide that's this big. We can show them on the x-ray why we need to do this or the other thing. We have better materials today. It used to be we would have to pull certain teeth because we couldn't crown them. Now we have white crowns for children that we didn't have. We have the zirconium. They're more difficult to fit, but they're available. The other side of it that's changed for us, which is hard, is that I'm kind of a dying breed in terms of solo practitioners. Most practices have multiple doctors and they have to participate with the insurance companies who haven't destroyed dentistry like they've done to medicine to a great degree. But we're still stuck. If my fee is 200 bucks, they may want to pay me $30. Right. And if I'm paying my staff three or $400 with the number of staff for an hour and I'm making 40 bucks, that just doesn't work. So there are a lot of people who, who get shuffled into a clinical situation where they're getting multiple restorations that may or may not necessarily require the extensive treatment they're getting, or they may get treatment that is not optimal because they can't afford to have certain things. I can remember when I used to, when I first started with Medicaid, they wouldn't pay for pulpotomies and they wouldn't pay for cramps. They'd only pay for fillings and space maintenance. So I said, you know what? If I crown this tooth, you don't pay for a spacer when I pull it. You don't pay for an abscess. You don't pay for three or four fillings at full. And it has nothing to do with my skill. It's the oral care. I can't control what goes at home. But over time, they started to pay for these things. And although the initial cost was higher than a filling, the long-term cost was less expensive. But I think the insurance industry has some effect on this, especially since COVID, because COVID really changed the way we did some of the dental care. For those of us who were masking, you know, when I started, I had a, a bigger beard than this. And after a while, because it wasn't until I got into practice that I had it, I wondered what I was bringing home to my babies and my beard, because we didn't mask and glove in those days. So I put face shields on it, so it was coming over my face. So we started wearing masks and gowns and stuff, gosh, probably within the first year and a half of my practice when I realized the aerosol sprays and what was coming into my face and what I was bringing home to my family. Sure. Uh, you mentioned, you know, that you want to uh, continue to practice in the indefinite future. One of the questions I had for you is, uh, you know, you're at that sort of place in your professional career where very often... Uh, you know, practice owners are beginning to think about some kind of transition slash exit strategy. It sounds from what you had talked about earlier that that's really not something that you see yourself uh, doing. And I'm kind of interested in what, if any, perspective you have on that. Well, nobody can last forever. Okay. So there's got to be a point in time you know, my staff is aging, I'm aging. I, I joke with my parents. I say, look, it, the reason I don't treat adults and older kids is because I keep my patients all young. That keeps me young. 
Sure. So I don't want you to age out. But realistically, there's there's a couple of people who I could train to do what I do. And they're interested. You know, you can have a heart attack, you can have a stroke, you can your eyes can go, your hands can go. Mother Nature doesn't listen to what I want to do. Exit strategy, it's always in the back of your mind once you reach the age that I'm at, because every time you pick up the newspaper, three quarters of the people are younger than me who are dying. You know, contemporaries, people I went to dental school with, all the dentists I had relationships with, they're gone and retired. So I know that it's inevitable. Um, what I did do is when I lectured, I used to tell guys when they're in their 50s, don't spend the next 10 years worrying about getting rid of your practice and transitioning. Enjoy it. Because if you decide you want to retire at 60, work to your 62. Why? Because the money you make in those two years is more than you're going to sell your practice for. So now if you sell your practice at 62, it doesn't matter what you get for it because you've already made the money you would have sold if you retired at 60. Right. So philosophically, you pick a point when you want to retire, work another year, maybe, if you can. And then you can retire and sell your practice for whatever. If you don't need your practice to retire, if you don't need those funds, it's less stress when you decide, okay, it's time for me to transition. I don't know what I'm going to do. It's in the, always in the back of my mind because of my age. And I do have some options. But the kind of practice I've got, someone can't walk in and pick up and go to work because they have to learn the technology. Right. Right. So, you know, there's got to be someone who's invested in the technology who wants to buy my practice to add to their group or people are buying practices around here, left and right. Companies are coming in and buying a practice. And, you know, the dentist is now working for somebody else. I don't think I want to do that. So that's probably my best exit strategy for me is, yes, I need something. Yes, I think about it. Yes, I do have someone who I think is interested but in no rush because she's young. She's just started her practice. And I've been sending her patients because we don't take any new patients older than three. And we got COVID allowed me to get rid of all my teenagers. So most of my patients are under 12 and now they're mostly under 10. So it's a very young age practice. Someone's starting up, walk in the door. But there is one problem with my practice. I'm left-handed. So, <laughs> my office is is, is left-handed which someone who comes in as left-handed will have no trouble if they're right-handed obviously they're going to have to make some physical change. yeah yeah exactly exactly i'll share with you a story some years ago um i was doing some consulting and would occasionally help a, a client sell a practice and there was a pediatric dentist that i knew that it was himself and he had a full-time associate uh, pedodontist. And the and he was doing about $2.1 million. And the year before he sold the practice, he himself worked 110 days. And he netted $1.2 million, if you can imagine. Oh, and, I think. I've been there. Yeah, part of the reason for that is in Virginia, uh, dental assistants can do pediatric hygiene. So he had four assistants that were doing, uh, you know, two uh, two profies per hour. And so, you know, he before he even got out of bed in the morning, you know, he was going to make uh, eight or ten thousand dollars. And when he asked me for me, my help to sell it, I said, Paul, why, why would you why would you sell this? That's crazy. And he said, well, I've been doing it for a long time. 
I'm used to doing it a certain way and I'm just tired and ready to do something else. And I said, well, you know, no matter how much we sell it for, it's not going to give you enough capital that would be the same as if you hired somebody to do what you do. And I said, you could, without seeing a patient yourself, you could take four or $500,000 a year out of this into the indefinite future. And he said, yeah, but I've been doing it myself this particular way. And I really don't want to do it any other way. And he ended up selling. Now we got a good value for the practice, all things considered, but nothing compared to what the uh, income stream would have been if he would have just hired somebody else and stepped away from the chair himself. So kind of, I understand, uh, you know, the different perspectives uh, that people have as they approach that decision. My girls call it my force. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite. And I agree with what he said. I do it my way. I don't have to ask anybody. If I want to change or buy something, I just do it. Right. right. I had four hygienists working for me for a long time, producing, seeing a patient, four patients every half an hour. Yep. So before COVID and back then, when I was seeing 70 patients a day with, with hygiene, it was the income was at least probably 60% higher, but I only work 18 hours a week. I work three days a week now and I generate plenty of income for myself, but I've also done well in the stock market too. So sure, sure. Uh, I don't need the office income to maintain my lifestyle at this point. I need it to maintain my sanity. <laughs> and, and that's an enviable place to be. And clearly uh, you're, you're still extremely violent engaged given your age. So uh, that's admirable. I've taken up a lot of your time. I really appreciate you doing this. Um, have a couple of final questions. Any sort of final pearls of wisdom that uh, you would pass on or share with the audience? If someone wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to contact you? My email is kidsteeth, K-I-D-D-S-T-E-E-T-H at AOL.com. I give all my patients my personal cell phone. So if they have a problem, they can reach me because most of them are babies um, and they don't want to go on hold. So I don't have anybody covering for me right now because I take the calls. And you know what? I get maybe one or two calls the day after I do surgery or text. They're not supposed to call me the text machine, but I've been doing this for 20 years and no one's taken advantage of it. No one calls me inappropriately. Sometimes I give out my cell to a friend and they call me for an appointment and I tell them to call the office. I think the pearls are enjoy what you do. That's number one. And treat your staff well, number two. And I think those two things make it easier for you because you don't have any stress. You know, I, I have a wife who is ill, which is stressful. And I see a lot of her because she can't live with me because of that. Um, and I see her every day. But I have to get the practice to socialize and things like that because she can't do that anymore. Sure, sure. So that, you know, it's not just me getting older. It's my children, my grandchildren, my family, my wife. And those all things come into play, too. It's not just me and dentistry. It's, it's my whole family. And right. uh, that comes into play. But I think we've talked about the things that I like and do. And um I guess just enjoy what you do. And as long as you enjoy what you do, you keep doing it if you're able to. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's sage advice. 
again, thanks so much for uh, agreeing to do this. I really, I uh, really appreciate it. I think you've offered a tremendous amount of valuable perspective based on uh, your own experience. So again, thanks uh, so very much. My pleasure. And you know, I've got three more of these to do. They're really from different other people interviewing me too. So it's interesting. They all put <laughs> up at the same time. But thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Good night. Have a good year. Happy New Year. Same to you. This has been Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners. We hope you gain valuable insights and practical wisdom that will guide you on your journey to success with your practice. To visit Stan Kinder on the web, go to www.everythingdso.com. If you found today's episode helpful, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an opportunity to hear brilliant insights from dental industry insiders. Remember, whether you're planning your next strategic move, seeking ways to enhance your practice's value or dreaming of expanding your dental empire, we're here to guide you on your way to success.